And once you confront your own thoughts by saying, I had that thought, my reason for this thought is inappropriate, my reason for this thought is tribal, my reason for this thought is to make myself feel good rather than because it's true, that makes it easier to confront that thought and to, uh, to push back against it, to fight yourself. Hi, Internet. Welcome to episode 12 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. I'm an award-winning author, a celebrated humorist, and probably wearing more false reindeer antlers than all of you put together right now. Changed My Mind is a show where I interview people who have changed their minds about big things, important things. We uh, live in an era where the truth seemingly does not matter. The more inaccurate someone's belief is, the more fervently they believe it as a rule. And I can't change that. I can't change the fact that people are committed to whatever falsehoods they find most comforting. So what do you do when you can't fix the problems in the world? If you're a white guy like me, the answer is to start a philosophy podcast. So that's what we do here. Um, we talk to people who have changed their minds about big things, everything from politics to religion to grammar to pop culture to history. Um, we talked about history this week. I had on as a guest my friend Tom Darrow and his thing which is kind of also my thing, this is my steez that I harp on a lot, is there's a popular conception that um, Christmas, Easter, other Christian holidays like Halloween, for instance, have deep pagan roots. And it's just not right. It's just an incorrect conception. And if you actually dig into the evidence, you will find that it there is nothing to it. Um, so I wasn't particularly unbiased when we had this conversation, but it still is a really interesting conversation. I talked to Tom about how he came around to the idea that Christmas is not particularly pagan after all. Now, to be clear, I personally would not be bothered if Christmas were pagan. Um, I was raised in a sect of Christianity where that sort of thing is more or less taken for granted. Um, it just bothers me that so many people are wrong about it. But you don't have to uh, take my word for it about this stuff. I'm going to flip you over to Tom. He will tell you what you need to know, and I will see you on the other side. Welcome to episode 12 of Changed My Mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington, and this is my podcast where I talk to people who have changed their minds about big things, important things. Um, the reason for that is because a lot of people seem to believe that people changing their minds just does not happen. Um, but, it, you know, I think we've all seen it happen, and I want to know why it happens. So, this is my show. It's about 14% research project. 
86% therapy for me. I am sitting here with my good friend, Tom Darrow. Say hi to the people, Tom. Hi, the people. <laughs> and there it is. Um, Tom is honestly one of my favorite people that I know only from social media. Um, I'm, I think I remember how we met. You just randomly showed up in the comment section on one of my posts once. And I was like, Tom seems cool and friended him. And, you know, we've been friends online ever since, which I'm glad for. Um, today, we're going to have part two of our very merry, very special Christmas se series of um, Change My Mind episodes. Last week, we or two weeks ago, we talked to Benito Serino about how he came to love Santa Claus. Uh, today, I'm going to talk to Tom about something that is often a concern of mine, but Tom is better read about it than I am, I think, which is the alleged pagan origins of Christmas. Um, and maybe if there's time, we could expand that to discussion of uh, other Christian holidays as well. Um, but why don't we talk about you first, Tom? Why don't you give the people the two-minute version of who is Tom Darrow? All right. I'm Tom Darrow. I am from Denver, Colorado. I live in my childhood home. I bought it from my parents several years ago. I'm a full-time stay-at-home dad, so I live here with my wife and my two kids, one of whom you might hear in the background on occasion here um, as he's just playing around in the same area as I am. Let's see, I have a master's degree in applied mathematics. I did not imagine that I would end up using that for parenting, but I have a <laughs> nine-year-old who really likes calculus, and it turns out I have to use my degree quite a bit. Um, <laughs> my previous career was in education, so I spent a lot of time in classrooms, in a museum, uh, in other sorts of formal and informal contexts working with students from anywhere from about six years old up to adult students. So I have a lot of background both in math and in teaching. Cool. As a former math teacher, current stay-at-home dad, I salute you, sir. We are the real heroes. Am I right? Go team. <laughs> All right, so let's um, let's jump into it. Um, this is I've heard I feel like I've heard this story in bits and pieces over the past few years. So I'm really really excited to hear it from the from the beginning. Um, what did you change your mind about? What what did you uh, what did you believe before? What do you believe now? So my previous belief was that the vast majority of your ceremonies, your practices, your traditions surrounding the Christmas holiday and also Easter, but we're talking about Christmas today, that these traditions were really explicit pagan religious practices. They were hijacked maybe as conversion attempts and that these, these particular traditions really had nothing to do with Jesus. They were just somebody else's religion that got kind of crossbred with Christianity. And I now believe that basically nothing that's connected to Christmas is actually has that sort of origin and particularly uh the date of christmas the december 25th date is just a good sort of example to use 
Um, there's a lot of other beliefs and other practices that follow the same pattern, but that one is pretty well established. And so that's where I'll focus a lot of my thoughts today. I've, I think I said earlier, this is one of those things that I am, <laughs> I think, in total agreement with you about. And it's something I harp on probably way too much to the point of being really obnoxious to people. Um <laughs> I do share the articles you write most years um, because it's a, they're, they're good summaries of kind of where I have come to over time. Yeah. And it's, it's like, it's not for me, it's not like about like, I need to think these are, you know, historically Christian holidays to legitimize my faith or anything like that. It's more like, stop being so sure about something that's wrong. You know, it's like the, it's like the people who say just Columbus discovered America or the civil war was fought over states rights. It's like, no, you're wrong. And if you read a book, you would know you were wrong anyway. <laughs> um, so let's, um, let's, let's get right into it. Why, why did you believe what you believed? Why did you think um, Christmas was a pagan holiday? Well, it made sense to me. And I, I kind of had this three part answer that I thought was a really satisfying answer. So the first part, a lot of stuff that's connected with Christmas isn't in the Bible. It's not mentioned in the Bible. Some of it doesn't really fit with the Bible. Like for example, the timing of Christmas, it probably was not December, probably more like September, just based on some of the environmental things when you hear the stories about the shepherds and about the travel. So, so that's the first part is just that it's not there in the Bible. The second part is that a lot of our Christmas traditions do seem kind of like generic winter traditions. So plausibly they could come from like a nature based religion. Oh, this is, this is a winter ceremony connected to the solstice. or this is a winter ceremony connected to somebody's beliefs about the harvest. And then the third part, and this is, this is a little bit of that emotional part, you know, that, that I kind of wanted to feel right is that coming from a Protestant background, coming from a background where I said, you know, there was a lot of stuff in Catholicism that was very, very messed up leading up to the reformation. I just found it easy to settle for an accusation that, Oh, that's another thing that Catholics messed up, <laughs> particularly, you know, as a teenager when I didn't have a lot of Catholic friends and I hadn't really read deeply to be able to take some things that I know from an accurate historical background, there were some things that the Catholic church was doing in certain periods of time that were wrong. It was easy to just say that they're usually wrong. They're wrong about so much. This is one I try to ask my guests. Um, it might seem like kind of a rude question on a surface, <laughs> but I'm, I'm interested in the, uh, this idea that like some of us believe what we believe for essentially selfish reasons. Um, like either it makes us feel better about ourselves, justifies whatever we already want to do and that sort of thing. Would, would you, um, would you say this applies to you or? I think, I think there's a little bit there um, coming from that background, from the perspective of, I like to feel smart, right? <laughs> and this idea, you know, where, where most of culture, they just, you know, they practice Christmas things. They, you know, celebrate on December 25th and they have a Christmas tree and they have all these traditions and it can make you feel smart 
and make you feel, you know, I have secret knowledge that I know that there's something wrong with this. And I'm reminded a little bit about uh, the Simpsons episode about Hans Sprungfeld, um, <laughs> where Lisa has discovered that their town founder, who they hold in high esteem, is actually not a good person. And she she feels very, very smug about it and very superior. And eventually she ends up deciding that she does not need to expose him because she doesn't need to hurt other people's feelings and their emotions and their background. So I think there's there was some truth to that feeling of like, I wanted to believe this because it seemed like the smart people thing to believe. On the other side of that, there is an emotional component to my changing my belief in the sense that I, I say that logic and emotion kind of guide each other. So mm -hmm. logic is what helps you piece together the facts, the ideas that you have into a coherent whole. And emotion is what tells you this is, this is a good answer. This is a satisfying <laughs> answer. Or yeah. it tells you this is frustrating. I feel like this, this answer just, this is not a good answer. There's something wrong here. Um, or emotion when it's not properly grounded, it might make you a little more paranoid. It might make you not, um, not accept a good answer because you just don't like it. Or if it's ungrounded emotion, it might make you not care and settle for easy answers. So I had this, this selfish view that this is the smart people thing to believe, but I also had this emotion that what I believed wasn't really a satisfying deep, um, useful, historically grounded belief. Yeah, if you um, dig far enough back in my um, Facebook posts, you'll definitely find stuff like Saturn is the reason for the season, y'all. So <laughs> there was definitely a time when I was that smug Protestant kid who was like, oh man, what I know about Christmas will blow your tiny minds, Catholics. I think we've all been there. And by all, I mean both of us. All of us within within the set of people currently <laughs> recording this podcast. Which nobody else matters, right? Um, when, uh, when did you uh, first question your original view? So that started on a video game forum. <laughs> the same video game forum where I met my wife. Awesome. This is a forum for the game called Descent came out in the mid nineties and we had a, like a debate section on the forum <laughs> and we got into some really serious, really heated debates about, you know, political candidates and all sorts of things. And my wife and I both uh, had this reputation that we would take your questions about Christianity really seriously. <laughs> and so somebody one day showed up with this, enormous video. It's like two hours long. <laughs> it was making this very big claim that basically all of the core Christian beliefs were actually hijacked from older mythology and especially from the Egyptian god Horus and that it's all really astrological symbolism. Was this, uh, was this Zeitgeist or was this before Zeitgeist? That, that, is, that is the movie that I was thinking of. Yeah. <laughs> and this friend of ours said this is very well-researched movie and only the first 40 minutes are relevant to me the rest of it was some sort of conspiracy theory about the founding of the united states and i just don't care that just wasn't important <laughs> to me at the time um so i had again this idea of logic and emotion 
pairing together, my emotional thought process was, if this movie, if what's been presented here is true, this is really devastating. This is, this is a very difficult thing that I need to wrestle with. And so it's important. And then my logical thought process is, well, if this is true, I should be able to confirm it pretty easily. I should be able to go read ancient mythology and just directly find references to all these things that are supposed parallels between all these different myths. If the uh, astrological symbolism is true, I should be able to get planetarium software Um, astronomy software, and I should be able to map out these patterns in the stars that I'm being told are uh, present in the Christmas story and in the Easter story and in these various other stories. So, what I did for the next several days is I obsessively read ancient mythology and I poked around in astronomy software. And what I found was in the astronomy software that the stars were not even close to where the movie presented them as being. <laughs> um, you know, it said, it said, well, the three stars on Orion's belt point towards Sirius, and then that points toward the sunrise at the solstice. And um, I, actually, I actually checked this in a planetarium once uh, because I worked for an aerospace museum and we had access to a state-of-the-art uh, portable planetarium. So I checked, and in fact, the, that particular alignment happens mid-February, doesn't happen anywhere close to the solstice. Mm-hmm. Um, but I checked a bunch of claims like that, and I said, okay, so the astronomy in all of this is way off. I read a bunch of ancient mythology, and I looked for the parallels, and I said, these parallels don't exist in the ancient mythology. And then I looked for people who were making this claim in the modern day. And I looked for their sources. And what I found is that repeatedly, I kept coming back to this English poet from the 1880s named Gerald Massey. And it looked as though he just made up that entire claim. (laughs) He didn't source anything to an older author. He didn't source anything originally. And he had a bunch of quotes of, you know, this is out of the story of Isis. This is out of the story of Horus. This is out of the story of Dionysus. You know, this is out of this story from Greece, Rome, uh, Egypt, Canaan, whatever, that were just quotes that seem to be fabricated. (laughs) So, during that process, that whole movie, the one thing that I just, I let go, I said, you got me on this one. December 25th is originally some sort of a solstice holiday. You know, I'm not even going to bother trying to run that one down because I agreed with that part of the conclusion. And somebody else in the discussion came up and they said, I think you should try to run that one down mm. to original sources as mm. well. You should check that claim. And I realized, yeah, I had never actually done that. I just believed it. And so, I tried to go through the same process. I started reading ancient mythology. I started reading ancient history. And I looked for what holiday was actually on December 25th. And I couldn't find one that actually predated Christmas. (laughs) What I ended up discovering, and this was a very long process, um, but what I ended up discovering is that there was a Roman emperor in 274 AD who moved a pre-existing ceremony on to December 25th, specifically as a response to Christians already celebrating Christmas. And the Christians who wrote about that date of Christmas before that time 
when they write about it, there's no reference to the solstice. There's no reference to the sun. It's all references actually to Passover and Easter and this, this concept that um, the date of conception and death for a great prophet, that those are the same date. And I don't know where that concept comes from, but that was a pre-existing concept that they were working from. And so, they were using their own uh, religious precepts from within Christianity to set this date. And then the copying was actually happening in the opposite direction, that it was somebody else saw that the Christian holiday was starting to be celebrated widely, and they moved a different celebration to try to counteract that. Yeah, and uh, you, um, I think you can actually trace that tradition to um, the rabbinic tradition, to pre-Christian sources in Judaism, if, if you want, like the idea that the world began on March 25th, and then the Christians come and say, well, that's why Jesus died on March 25th, which means Jesus must have been conceived on March 25th, which is why uh, the Feast of the Annunciation, when the, which is the Feast of Jesus' Conception, right, is March 25th. And then um, the, all they did was add nine months to that. And <laughs> there you go. Right. So, there's, there's a lot of... Um, there's a lot of tradition there that is not at all connected to nature worship or solstices or anything like that, but that's all connected to that rabbinic tradition, to Jewish tradition, and therefore to a lunar calendar, right. by the way, not a solar calendar. So, the idea that it's some sort of a solstice event doesn't even fit with that calendar itself. Right. Um, yeah, when, whenever and, I see stuff like Horus was born on, you know, December 25th, just like Jesus, like, I don't think the Egyptian calendar even had a December 25th, <laughs> you know, and then it's like, well, the date that was equivalent to December 25th. Well, no, like not every calendar is a 365 day calendar. They don't have equivalent dates. <laughs> like, have you not noticed that like the Chinese New Year or the or Ramadan or uh, Hanukkah fall on different dates every year? Like, come on, guys. Right. Well, and that actually leads to something really interesting, which is. Uh, eventually, I did track down where the rumor that Christmas was a pagan holiday comes from. There was a conflict in the eastern and western parts of Christianity after they split in 10-whatever, 10, 10 1066 AD, I believe it is. And depending on how they chose to translate that Hebrew calendar into the Roman calendar, they came up with either December 25th or January 6th. Right. So, they had a disagreement and there was a 12th century uh, Syrian bishop whose name I did not think to write down. Um, I believe it's like Jacob Bar Salabi, something like that. I've never looked up the pronunciation, so I might be totally wrong on that. But he basically said, well, the Roman Catholic Church, they don't have the same date as us. It's probably because they chose a date based on some sort of a pagan holiday. Mm. And we're the pure sect. We're the pure church. <laughs> so, the Eastern church is right and the Catholics are wrong. So, that thought process that I had that made me very quick to accept this rumor, that's why it was really started was somebody who was talking about how his sect was better than a different sect of Christianity. And he didn't have any historical basis for it. 
he just had beef. <laughs> he was just upset with the Catholics. And he said, well, obviously Catholics are wrong, so they must have a reason to be wrong. And that's kind of one of the big ironies for me is that smug internet atheists talking about how Christianity is or Christ- Christmas is secretly pagan have fallen for propaganda from Christian fundamentalists. <laughs> Right. And I've noticed that every time I try to run down any sort of pagan origins for Christmas trees or any anything else connected with Christmas, it's kind of the same story that what I find is that there isn't any documented pagan process or pra- pagan ceremony, pagan uh, history connected with the particular type of ceremony that we're looking for. And some people will say, well, it was very secretive. But two things we know. One is that both your Roman culture and your German culture during the Protestant Reformation were very literate cultures. And they did write about things that they saw within their own cultures. Right. You know, they wrote, they wrote just everyday letters, you know, hey, Dave, how's it going? By the way, we put up our holiday tree. <laughs> so, if that was a pre-existing tradition, it, I would expect it to be mentioned. Right. And the other part is that Christians were very literate and very, very willing to criticize outside religions. <laughs> we, see it, we see it in the Bible. I mean, we see it in the letters of right. Paul where he just slams whatever particular movement was going on that was teaching Christianity or teaching concepts similar to Christianity, but in a wrong way where he, you know, he talks very bad about other people. And we see that in a lot of the letters of the early church where they will criticize Roman religion. They will criticize Egyptian religion. They'll criticize Greek religion. They'll criticize everybody else. (laughs) And every time I go to track down something like Christmas trees, I can't find any spot where Christians are saying, you know, well, these pagans and their tree worship and they're doing it wrong and we're going to change that ceremony. It just doesn't exist. Right. And when we do see early mentions of it, 100% of the symbolism that we see the first time we see it described comes from a Christian perspective. Right. Every single time. Yeah. I mean, I've heard people try to connect um, Christmas trees to like, was it St. Boniface chopping down the the oak tree that people thought Thor resided in or something, something along those lines going off the top of my head here. But it's like, even even like a total outdoor moron can see there's a huge difference between a deciduous tree and an evergreen tree. So many of the details just don't, they don't work out. It's like I said earlier about emotion. Sometimes if you're motivated to just think bad about somebody, you'll settle for a dumb answer. <laughs> you'll settle, settle for a criticism that really doesn't hold up under scrutiny but as long as you don't subject it to scrutiny, you're okay. And that's how a lot of these claims turn out. If I, if I want to believe badly about you, and then somebody tells me something that sounds bad about you, and I decide not to check, I can continue in that belief. But if, if I have that little emotional pang that says, even though I want to believe badly about you, what I just heard, it doesn't sit right with me. I'm unsettled by it. I need to check if I have that sort of impulse, I'll have a very, very different uh, interaction with that idea. And that's where I'm at with a lot of these pagan origins of things relating to Christmas and things relating to Easter and things relating to Halloween is that I hear them 
And in the past, I wanted to believe them for uh, really sectarian reasons for, you know, <laughs> fundamentalist sort of reasons. Like my form of Christianity is the pure one and these other people are doing it wrong. But I'm unsettled when I hear these, these statements that this is the history. And then I try to track it down and that doesn't really match with the history that we have. And there are pieces that are really very bad matches that it looks like, you know, somebody just threw it up against the wall and they were hoping that it would stick. <laughs> well, it's a tree. It is a tree. Okay, but it's not the same type of tree and the timeline doesn't work and the decorations don't, you know, the, the decorations aren't there in the same way and we're just guessing. And, and sometimes we're guessing things that are also very insulting to say German pagans. Right. That were like, and they were they were illiterate, stupid, backwards, whatever, and and like, no, they weren't. I mean, do you know anything about Germany in the 1600s? And, you know, this was a fairly enlightened society, and there certainly were big segments that were illiterate. But assuming that you know, well, the pagans were only the backwards, stupid people. That's kind of insulting to them too. <laughs> It just, it doesn't end up working out uh, when you try to match the history and when you try to match what's known and documented with that particular theory. It just doesn't fit. I feel like maybe um, for the sake of listeners, uh, we should go through some of the big Christmas traditions, um, you know, what, what people think and what you actually found. So you want to maybe break down Christmas trees real quick? Christmas trees have been one of the hardest ones for me to track sure. down. But from what we can tell, they seem to appear roughly roughly during the Reformation, roughly with Martin Luther. There, there's not really any detail there at all to speak of. Yeah. As far as I can tell, and this is pretty speculative on my part, it just seems like you have trees, <laughs> right? You have trees being cut down in the winter for firewood or whatever. Sure. And the idea of decorating a tree is a very basic thing to do. And actually, one of the things that you see in some of the very earliest decorations of these evergreen trees that got brought indoors or that would be right outside is that they would decorate them with food, with things like popcorn, cran berries, things that the local wildlife could eat. Hmm. I really have not been able to find any sort of clear descriptions that are early enough that I would be confident in saying that's where it really came from is this particular piece of symbolism. But it doesn't seem to come from anything that was a pre-existing ceremony. You don't see historians of medieval Germany writing about the indoor evergreen right. trees with decorations on them. Um, it just, it appears with Martin Luther. Yeah, and popcorn and cranberries are both New World crops anyway, so it's not like ancient pagans would have had access to them in Germany. Right, and there are a lot of things like that that when you when you try to trace down the history, you run into that exact sort of, wait, that can't be ancient because, um, you know, that would be anachronistic. Right. That wouldn't fit. Yeah, um, and even if it were ancient, you would expect to see at least some mention of it among you know, Catholic Germans prior to the Reformation, and you don't. And the other thing is that you don't see post-Reformation, you don't see Catholic Germans and Protestant Germans criticizing each other over the Christmas right. tree. You don't see either, either group accuse the other group of, this is a pagan ceremony that you just hijacked. Right. And from my perspective, Catholic and Protestant Germans, they loved to criticize each other. 
anything they could criticize each other for, they criticized. So the fact that there's no criticism on that front says to me that it wasn't some sort of major corruption of a pre-existing religious ceremony that it was very much just a straightforward symbolic thing that some village or other started doing and passed along and that it was done for Christian doctrinal reasons, Christian symbolic reasons. And that's just, that's just what it was. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like the moon landing, right? Like if we fake the moon landing, why has Russia never even tried to accuse us of that? Right. I, I say that same thing about a lot of, a lot of modern things. Um, if the U S faked that, or if, um, you know, if the Protestant church or if the Catholic church faked that we would hear criticism from our favorite critics. And when when the only criticism that we hear is way after the fact, right. it's really disconnected from the source and it doesn't reference the actual conflicts that were going on at that time. Right. That looks like that looks like somebody sort of trying to make a name for themselves by creating a new theory rather than somebody really carefully researching and discovering that this thing had these particular origins. Right. It's, it's pseudo history, not history, right? Because it sidesteps the historical method in favor of sensationalism. I like the term fake lore. Fake lore. Yeah. <laughs> Would you say there are selfish or self-interested reasons that you question your original view? The, the thing that really made me question it was my own, my own desire for consistency and the fact that I was unsettled when my friend made that observation, that that's the one thing that I didn't check. Sure. You know, he said, you should try to check this. And I realized I check things. That's something that I just reflexively do. And I had not done it. And, um, and I thought, you know, I go to so much effort to think through and process through this larger claim about, you know, we have these, these religious stories that predate Christian stories and they have these strong parallels. Um, and so, you know, the, the newer story obviously copied from the older story. Well, let's fact check that. And then I thought I haven't fact checked a lot of these specific things about Christmas. And I felt like, I felt bad. Mm -hmm. I felt like I had failed myself <laughs> because, because it's so important to me to try to track things down when I'm able yeah. to. Which I really <laughs> appreciate about you, by the way, because I, I see so many people and you know, I see so many people on social media who are like, well, that's from Snopes and I don't believe anything Snopes publishes. It's like... Come on, man. <laughs> Snopes literally lists every source they use at the bottom of the article. You could look into it yourself instead of just deciding whether you're going to buy it or not. Like actually track things down to the sources and learn something as opposed to just filtering things based on your pre-existing biases. Right. And uh, historically, I've actually used Snopes quite a bit. And there are times when I think... Uh, when they're analyzing something political, they might uh, devote far too many words trying to explain one side's perspective over the other side's perspective sure. uh, in a way that I think, you know, that, that maybe isn't, isn't totally accurate. 
but they do list those sources. And so even when, even when the way that they describe things, even when I don't agree with that, even when I think it's problematic, if I go through to those sources, I can evaluate it for myself. And that's the process that I think is so important is go to the earliest sources that you're able right. to go to the best, the cleanest, the most, the, the, um, the, the closest to the original source that you're able to and see what you can find. And sometimes it'll be exactly what you expected. And the lesson that you take out of it is, yeah, I was right. But sometimes it surprises you to hear, oh, this quote that I was criticizing this person for, that's not even something that they said, or they said all of those words, but not in that mm -hmm. order. Or this thing that I thought was so obviously, clearly a uh, solstice festival, it doesn't fall on the solstice. <laughs> it's like four days yeah. off. And the, the solstice festivals that we have that were pre-existing were done four days before that being able to track things down, go look at the sources and say, this is not what I expected. It's a little bit humbling, mm -hmm. but it's also kind of, it's empowering to be able to say, I have this superpower <laughs> that I can read. Things. It's like, if you've ever seen, if you've ever seen the PBS show, super wide, <laughs> his superpower, he has the power to read. Right. And because he can read, he can correct the story that power to read and say, oh, I found something that isn't what I thought. Mm -hmm. it, has, it has undermined my previous story. It's scary yeah. in yeah. a way. You might, you might end up somewhere very uncomfortable. You might think that you know everything and you might find out that something in your family history is very frightening. <laughs> you might find out something in your religious history is not what you expected. So it's frightening, but it's empowering. Oh, I learned something. I have a clearer picture of reality now. Yeah. Um, so I guess we kind of touched on this just now. Um, but I, I do have the question, how did it feel to question your previous beliefs? I mean, I'm, I am curious about this with you as, as someone who, you know, was raised in kind of a low church, you know, non-liturgical environment and has remained there. I mean, is this, has this really meant anything to you on an, on an emotional or a personal level? Or is it more just like, yep, I know the truth and the truth's important. I mean, from, from a practical perspective, the, the biggest sort of emotional impact that it's had is just that it makes it easier to celebrate or not based on whoever I'm sure. with. You know, that I don't feel like I have to celebrate Christmas in this traditional American Christmas. I don't feel like I have to celebrate that style just because that's tradition, but I am also not afraid of celebrating Christmas. I'm not thinking, oh no, this is, I'm accidentally, secretly performing some sort of idolatry. <laughs> uh, that knowing, knowing the reality means that I can kind of go either way. Sure. And so I can adjust to who I'm with. Mm -hmm. I have a sister who is a Jewish convert. And so she doesn't celebrate, obviously, any Christian holidays. Mm -hmm. And I don't need to make her uncomfortable by saying, you know, well, Christmas trees are so important, blah, blah, blah. Like, I, I just don't need to. 
But at the same time, I don't feel like I'm afraid that I will be judged as doing pagan things because I have a Christmas tree because I, I have looked up the history and there's not a pagan ceremony there. Right. This is a weird question. I don't know if it applies to you, <laughs> but what I, what I ask all my guests is, do you have a, do you have a coming out story? You know, like when you had to say, Hey everybody, I uh, changed my mind about this big, important thing. Um, does that apply to you or? Well, the, the original, the uh, video game forum discussion, that thread was just an ongoing share. So somebody posted the movie and my first few posts were like, you know, this, this looks like something that I really need to look into. I'll get back Mm -hmm. to you. And then a few days later, I wrote this giant post (laughs) that was actually so big that I had to split it into pieces (laughs) because there was like a 50,000 character limit and I was going over it. I mean, this was an enormous detailed post that I made (laughs) where I went through all the various claims. So people were right there in the thread. And, and then my friend said, Hey, you should also look up the December 25th date. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so that happened in that same thread. And, um, for a while, people on the other side kind of kept coming back with new things to argue with. Um, one guy kept coming in and saying that I was ignorant and dogmatic, which I thought was really funny because I was quoting history books and I was actually quoting original mythology directly. Accusation to it's, It was the weirdest accusation. But I, I think that was that unhealthy notion uh-huh. that he was he was very connected to this idea that he just slammed the Christians <laughs> and he just proved us wrong. And it was hard for him to let go of that and realize that actually he got fooled by some very weird astrology. <laughs> um, so, so it all played out there in public. And this particular discussion actually kept getting traction for about three or four years after that. Somebody would find it on Google <laughs> and they would pop into our video game forum and they would ask some questions. Uh, and frequently they would, they would come in really aggressively and say something insulting about me. <laughs> um, and then they would two hours later say something else insulting. And it was like, come on, dude, this was a three-year-old thread. You don't expect me to see it five minutes after you commented. <laughs> so, so it played out in public and it was, it was a very long process. Uh, eventually, most of the response that I got from other people was really respect And not just respect because people agreed with my conclusions, but it was respect from the perspective that people said, I'm glad that you actually went out and read things. Mm -hmm. I'm glad you tried to chase these leads down. And so even spots where, um, like with the Christmas tree, where my conclusion is, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Uh, But here's here's what I have read and here's what I can't find. People for the most part, were very appreciative because all of a sudden now they had information that if they wanted to try tracking things down, there was already a foundation laid for them. Wow. That's cool. So, yeah, I mean, um, how has your life changed since your beliefs changed? I imagine not all that much, but I'm curious. <laughs> a lot of it is that I'm a lot less likely to be judgmental about what other people do for Christmas. Mm-hmm. Partly even the acknowledgement that people have been adding Christian symbolism to the holiday yeah. for centuries. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Then the idea that, you know, somebody might have a brand new tradition, that sits okay with me. Hmm. I'm, I don't have that sort of 
purity approach where I say, well, it's not in the original manuscripts from 72 AD. And so therefore you're in the wrong for, for celebrating in this way, but I'm much more connected to this, this sort of long historical development. And similarly with Easter, mm -hmm. Uh, having discovered that, for example, Easter eggs are, I think they're second century. I mean, yeah, they're, they're very, very ancient. old. Yeah. And that they were typically dyed red. And the idea is that this sort of gray, they're like the gray stone of the tomb. And then the red is the blood of Christ. Mm -hmm. Being able to track that sort of thing down and say, okay, this actually has a very ancient history and it's a very beautiful history and it's okay for people to develop their own rituals and their own expectations. Now I just, I, I'm not going to start trouble with family members <laughs> about their Christmas celebrations. And, and I'm also not going to feel bad when somebody criticizes me and says, well, don't you know that's pagan? I'll just say, actually, let me share this article uh, by this guy named Luke T. Harrington. Uh, <laughs> That, that matches with what I have researched myself, um, but it's already written, so it's easier than writing it myself. <laughs> I feel like um, this, is, this is a Christmas episode, but I feel like we should maybe talk about the Easter egg thing a little bit because I'm sure we're going to get pushback from someone on that. Um, do you want to talk about like the, the people who say, well, eggs and bunnies are obviously pagan fertility symbols? What would, you, what would you say to that? I think it's that same thought process that I had before. Sometimes something seems like it's obviously a type of symbol, but you really have to track it down. Right. And I've tried particularly with bunnies. <laughs> and I just, I can't find anybody using bunnies as a fertility symbol. Yeah. I really can't. Like nothing, nothing that's very old. And with eggs, the fact that we have a very clear documentation that's like second century mm -hmm. within the church, it is about new life, yeah. but it's not about fertility. It's about, it's about the tomb and new life in the blood of Christ. One other thought I had as I was kind of preparing for this, and this came from that larger film about symbolism being hijacked. There was a lot in that film about how the Bible uses symbolism like fishermen and cattle, you know, rams and cows and bulls, and that's astrological symbolism. Well, wait a minute. You're talking about people who live between the Mediterranean <laughs> and the Red, the Red Sea, and you're, you're talking about how they're fishermen? Yeah. Like, yeah. for something to be, I think, sort of obviously a such and such religious symbol, you need something that's not just common within culture. Right. If it just exists. <laughs> if you're a goat herder for a living, you're going to naturally compare things to goats. It's not a reference to the Capricorn astrological sign or whatever it's it's just what's in right, your head right. all the time yeah right and and the direction that i went from there is i said you know if you're going to tell me that this is all about these astrological ages there are some astrological signs that are weird <laughs> you know you take you take your 12 zodiac symbols and some of them are just they're cattle yeah right yeah. they're fish they're things that they're things that you would expect anybody from the Middle East to be familiar with. And then some of them are weird. So, don't show me the common ones. Show me the right. weird ones. You know, it's like if I sit here and said, well, you know what's a pagan symbol? Having a roof on the top of your house. <laughs> <laughs> what? Like, everybody's secretly a pagan. There's, there's no content there. Right. You know, if I said, well, it's a pagan symbol to have, you know, 
a statue of a giant gargoyle on your house, at least then I'm talking about something that's a little bit unusual. And then we can talk about where that history comes from. <laughs> but something, something that's very common, like eggs. Right. Eggs exist. <laughs> eggs are out there everywhere. Everybody Each has a protein for poor um, people. That's all it is. <laughs> right. Eggs. You know, my mother-in-law raises chickens uh, for eggs. I have a friend at church who raises chickens for eggs. When we're talking about something, when we're trying to track down if something is a unique and specific symbol that comes out of a particular type of background, it's important that the symbol that we're looking at is actually something unique. <laughs> it's not just everywhere and worldwide, but then it's also important that, that, that the symbolism actually makes sense and it actually connects to something that that particular religious background cared about. And I hear so much fake symbolism that says things like, well, Ishtar was a fertility goddess and her symbol was the bunny. And then you look up Ishtar, just look up Ishtar on Wikipedia. There's no fertility goddess stuff there, or there's, there's no you know, just, just a minuscule mention. Stars and lions and gates. Lions. Yeah. It's, this, this is a war goddess. You know, this is a death, death sort of goddess, but you end up sometimes with this, this supposed symbolism that doesn't trace to anything. You run into dead ends. It doesn't actually fit. It's just an answer that you're primed to settle mm -hmm. for. And being primed to settle for a particular answer, that's a habit that you should train yourself out mm -hmm. of. If you realize, I want this particular belief to be true. With me, I want, as a Protestant, to be able to say, oh, look, the Catholic Church, they messed this one up. <laughs> you know, that, that's, just, that's just tempting to me. Mm. You know, no offense out there to all my Catholic friends. I have quite a few nowadays. Um, but that it's very tempting to me to, to want to be able to say that my branch of Christianity is doing things better than other people's branches of Christianity. And so it's important for me to have a reflexive response when I, when I have that emotion to say that is an unhealthy emotional drive. Mm -hmm. And the healthy emotional drive is for me to say, I want to believe this. So let me actually look it up and see if I can find contrary information. Sure. Yeah. Let me, let me push back against myself. Let me fight against my own emotions and make sure that I'm holding myself to the sort of standards that I wish I could hold other people to. Right. Yeah. I don't know if you've read any uh, Jonathan Haidt. I'm familiar with some of his work, some like The Righteous Mind. And, and you know, some of his work indirectly inspired this whole show. Um, but I remember hearing once that um, some of the research he's, he's done, he's, he said, when people are confronted with facts that they want to believe they the only question they ask is can i believe it if you confront people with facts they don't want to believe they immediately ask must i believe it right and and from a math background it's very much you know a, is this something that's permitted or is this something that's required right. and i think it's healthy to try to reverse those positions within yourself mm -hmm. something that i think is a really useful sort of mental trick is when you have that sort of thought you actually take a step outward from your own thought. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking that I want to believe this mm -hmm. because it makes me feel good about myself and my own traditions and my tribe. 
So then, then what you say is, I notice that I'm thinking that. Yeah. And then you say, my reason for thinking that is that I'm emotionally invested in my own tribe. And once you confront your own thoughts by saying, I had that thought, my reason for this thought is inappropriate. My reason for this thought is tribal. My reason for this thought is to make myself feel good rather than because it's true. That makes it easier to confront that thought and to, uh, to push back against it, to fight yourself sure. and say, say, I want to believe this. So I should go to extra great lengths mm -hmm. to see if it's false. Or I don't want to believe this, so I should go to greater lengths to look for evidence in favor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. My next question on the list here is, are you at all evangelistic, quote unquote, about this belief? And I know you are, but you want to talk about that some? Um, yeah. So every year, Christmas and Easter, I repost those articles, incidentally, the, the Luke T. Harrington articles <laughs> that are basically just a summary of kind of where I've come to. Uh, they're very similar sort of conclusions. I just post those on social media because I think it's important to have that mentality of saying, wait, I thought this was true, but I looked it up and it's not. And I don't really push those out there all the time. I just put them, you know, every year, Christmas and Easter season. The other piece of it, though, is when somebody comes to me and says, ah, ha, ha, did you know about these pagan origins? I kind of like, I get this big smile on my face. Like, oh, you just picked a fight that you didn't realize you were picking. Uh, because they're expecting to be able to tell me th this very basic, you know, first cut estimation that, well, Christmas trees came from pagan holidays. <laughs> and what they're not expecting is that I've actually sat here and read through, you know, stupidly large numbers of documents just trying to track down the symbolism. And they're not expecting me to say back to them, well, you shouldn't presume that. You should actually look into some historical sources and see what you find. Yeah. Okay. So, aside from, aside from your new beliefs themselves, um, what would you say you learned from the experience of changing your mind? I love this question. <laughs> um, first of all, I just, I learned a lot about the nature of belief, uh -huh. about the degree to which sometimes I believe things or other people who are you know very well educated believe things, not because they're right, not because they've seen good evidence, but because there's an ease in believing mm. them. Because you're primed to believe them, they sound good on the surface, and you're sort of disarmed, and so you settle for the easy answer. And another piece of what I learned there that I thought was an interesting related factor is that sometimes it doesn't take very long, it doesn't take very much effort to realize that you were completely wrong. Hmm. As an example, um, some of the astronomy things, some of the, you know, this star and this star line up in this way on this date literally took me three or four minutes total to locate and install astronomy software, set the date correctly, and just look at the stars <laughs> and say, that's not right. <laughs> that's not how those stars line up. They're not even close. Mm -hmm. And the fact that it took that little time to do that and that I got to that point having checked a bunch of other claims. So, I was about three or four days into the process and literally nobody else in the conversation had tried that. Mm -hmm. I thought that was a little bit of an indictment on the way that a lot of us approach knowledge. Mm -hmm. 
is that we don't we don't take the time to take two or three minutes to fact check things that are basic and easily verified. Mm-hmm. And sometimes that's all it takes. All right. Well, I have um, three final quasi-philosophical questions I, I try to ask all my guests. Um, long-term purpose of this, or at least one of the long-term purposes of this, being to try to get at these um, you know, epistemological and ontological questions of how do we know truth and how do we know ourselves? So um, what, do you, what would you say identity is? Does everyone have an identity? Do we all have this core essence? What do you think? So I actually love the mathematical idea of the identity. <laughs> the identity is the thing that remains the same when you apply an operation to Interesting. it. Um, as an example, plus zero, right? If you add zero over and over and over again, you stay at zero Hmm. or multiplying by one, you multiply by one over and over and over again. It's the thing that doesn't get changed by the circumstance. It's the thing that's sort of, it's, it's sort of the constant that's there all along. And in human terms, I think there's something to that idea that your identity is the part of you. It's, it's what's inside that is, that lasts through circumstances, Hmm. which is not to say that identity is unchanging in humans, um, but that it's more like there's a constant thread there Hmm. that your identity has to do with your attitudes, your personality, your approach to certain types of ideas, what's important to you. And that that's something that, um, that you will see projected differently in different circumstances but that you can say, oh, I see why that person responded in that way in this one circumstance. And then they responded differently in this other circumstance because of that underlying source of their reactions. Hmm. That, that that underlying thing is the identity. What about um, human nature? What would you say human nature is? Are we all the same deep down? Are we all blank slates are we all different what do you think well human human nature is a lot of things uh, one thing that i want to highlight that i've talked about a few times here already is this combination of logic and emotion mm-hmm. or this combination of, of of reason and emotion so we're not just computers we don't just assemble facts and rules and ideas mm-hmm. uh, but we also care we we have this Uh, this emotional response. We care if we're satisfied with our answer. We care if we're frustrated. We care if, if a conclusion that we come to bothers Mm -hmm. us. And so we don't just have knowledge. We don't just have facts, but we also think about how does that impact our relationships? Mm -hmm. How do our relationships impact our ideas? And I think that's something that's unique to human nature that you don't see either in other types of creatures or in things like computers. Mm. Yeah, I actually saw someone, um, it was actually Drew Dick, the Christian writer, not that that matters, but I saw some, I saw him posting on Twitter the other day about the weird assumptions that the concept of artificial intelligence is built on. He was like, where do we get this idea that computers getting more and more advanced will somehow give them what we call intelligence, which ultimately is just emotions and desires and that sort of thing. Right. I mean, what, what a computer is good at is very different from what a human is good right. at. Um, you know, computers are very good at computing 
the wrong answer because you gave them the wrong data. <laughs> <laughs> They're great at that. Right. So that's a little bit of a reference to uh, a quote. Um, somebody asked Charles Babbage about that very, very early on. If I give it the wrong figures, will it give me the right answer? <laughs> I can't fathom the sort of confusion going on in their mind to think that that question makes sense. Um, yeah, I think um, when people hear a, a computer is a, a thinking machine, they immediately assume, they immediately ask, like, what's it thinking about then? Like, I um when I was a kid, I, I remember playing a, I'd be playing a video game and wondering to myself, you know, what's the Nintendo thinking about me? It probably thinks I, I suck at this game, <laughs> which just kind of illustrates the, the difference between thinking and thinking about something, I guess. I don't know. I think when we talk about computers thinking, what are computers thinking? Well, one, zero, zero, one, zero. That's the sort of thoughts that they have. It's, it's yeah. <laughs> data, but it's not emotion. And this is something I've observed. You know, if you ever interact with somebody who's depressed in a way that makes them uh, emotionally just that they don't really have very strong emotional reactions. Mm -hmm. Their decision-making gets really awful. Hmm. Like I, I would like to make a sandwich. I can't decide whether to go get the plate first or the knife first or the bread first or the peanut butter first because of that not caring huh. because of it doesn't matter to me what I do here. And if you're, if your emotions, if you don't have emotions, then you need a rule. You need a type of guidance. You need a program right. to follow. And, and so the way that computers think, they need that guidance. And even the way that we program AI, that builds in assumptions from the programmers, from the mm -hmm. software developers, the, the hardware engineers. All those assumptions are pushed into the way that computer intelligence works. And they're not the same sorts of assumptions as we have in human intelligence, where we care about things, where it matters to us, what the meaning of the universe is, things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really good, um, that's a really good distinction. Um, that's, that's my pet peeve. <laughs> when I, when I see someone arguing online, and they're, and they're like, Oh, I've got logic on my side. Well, assuming you even know what the word logic means, which is a big F, but even if you do, what are you doing with that logic? Are you starting with good inputs? Do you have the same goals and values as me? You know, I mean, there's so much more to it than just logic. Right. Because again, logic takes facts and rules and frameworks that you already have. And then it tells you what those are connected to, what those imply. It doesn't tell you that you got your facts right. It doesn't tell you that your initial <laughs> frameworks are accurate or reflect the correct values, reflect the correct um, emotional content. And really, really, when you get to a pure logic perspective, pure logic is a very limited tool. It's a very valuable tool. You know, coming from that math background, I love logic. Sure. But when you try to act like logic goes beyond its own confines, that's where you kind of get into trouble. That's really good. And finally, um, what is truth? How do you know truth? Is there such a thing as truth? What do you think? So, my favorite definition of truth is it's whatever corresponds to reality. Uh, <laughs> and then, of course, you get stuck to the question, what is reality? 
Um, mm-hmm. And and then you you know you take a philosophy course and you spend a lot of time arguing about these sorts of things. Um, <laughs> but I think I think if you just grant yourself some very basic assumptions, you know that I I think therefore I am. I can't fully trust my senses, but my senses are giving me at least a filtered view of what's happening outside of me. Then you sort of, you, you, you bootstrap a perspective on truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you go through, and this is where, this is where the scientific method is very strong. You take the pieces that you have and then you test them. And then you take new pieces and you test them and you take new pieces and you test them. And so you keep, basically what you do is you keep taking your thoughts and your ideas and your frameworks and you just slam them against reality repeatedly. (laughs) And you see what breaks. You see where it is that reality pushes back against you and says, "Mm, that didn't work. (laughs) And that's, that's really what, that's what science is, is it's taking, taking your thoughts and slamming them against reality (laughs) <laughs> and there are lots of details in terms of how to do that in a way that's repeatable and how to how to take the most accurate measurements you're able to and things like that. But fundamentally, the philosophy is take the thoughts, slam them against reality, see what breaks. <laughs> I love that. That is great. If my science teachers in school had described the scientific method that way, I might have listened a little bit better. Well, Tom, it, it's been a real pleasure having you on the show, talking to you. Do you have uh, anything you want to plug before we go, a Twitter or anything like that? Um, I don't really do a lot of my own social media, uh, but I do want to plug a video game. Sure. I mentioned this this whole process for me started on uh, a mid-90s video game forum for Descent. Uh, my wife and I met on that forum. Years later, we actually helped the original Descent developers with their new game, which it has been out about a year now. It's called Overload because the reactor at the end of the level overloads and it blows up and then you have to flee the mine and not get blown up yourself. Uh, you can find Overload on Steam. You can find it on GOG. You can find it on playoverload.com. Please play it. Uh, save my life. I'm an NPC in the game. So is my wife. Don't kill us. <laughs> <laughs> that is really cool. Did you say you helped with it, right? You actually like helped with the uh, designer programming or just like on Kickstarter or what? Uh, so we were big Kickstarter backers. And part of that was we had a lot of private discussions and partially public discussions with the development team. And then we actually went to their development studio and spent a week sitting with the developers, the designers, the testers, and trying things out. Even at one point, since my wife uh, has done some modding on the very old game, we did some prototyping of some ideas for the new game by recompiling Descent and saying, "This, this idea that we thought might be good no, it's not good. It doesn't feel good. <laughs> it makes your ship feel very sluggish. So we spent some time in the studio and really, I think, had a pretty big impact on some pieces of the direction of where the game went. And it turned out to be a very, very fun game. You fly That's around, really cool. you blow stuff up, you know. That is really cool. Yeah, um, I've always been kind of a console gamer, so I missed out on a lot of the really good PC games like Descent, but... 
I heard it was pretty decent. Yuck, yuck, yuck. Uh, good, good, uh, good one. Good one, oh Dan. Man. Oh. If, that, if that doesn't break me through into podcasting stardom, I don't know what will. Yeah. So, um, Overload is available on Xbox and I believe PS4. Okay. Whichever, whichever the current-ish PlayStation is. Um, yeah, yeah. So, you I've can gone, pick it up um, play the single player. Very cool. All right. Well, this has been... Changed my mind with Luke T. Harrington. I'm Luke T. Harrington. You can find me at LukeTHarrington.com or on Twitter at Luke T. Harrington. I'll see you next time. I want to tell you guys a story about something called the eternal September. And no, it wasn't a number one summer jam, although it probably should have been. Now, to be clear, I know about this only from having read about this because eternal September, which is still going on, began when I was about eight years old. Eternal September is a story that goes all the way back to some of the earliest days of the internet, um, really before the World Wide Web even became a thing. The World Wide Web is what most people call the internet today, but web browsers, websites, those are fairly recent inventions compared to the internet. Before the web was invented, there were other things you could do on the internet. You could send emails. You could access smaller networks, like for instance, America Online, um, and you could participate in news groups or online forums, bulletin board systems, discussion groups, basically. Now, one of the uh, biggest discussion groups was called Usenet, which is short for user network because nobody was very clever at naming things back then. And Usenet was just a, it was just a collection of forums where you could post discussion questions and people could comment on them. It was a bulletin board system, uh, much like the dissent forums we were talking about in the main part of the show. Now, in the early days of the internet, uh, the late 80s, early 90s, um, when it was starting to be available to the lay user, it was still mainly available only on college campuses. You would go off to school. If you were a student, you would have internet access for the next nine months or so, and then you would go home and you'd be offline until you went back to school in September. Um, now, what this meant was that most of the users on Usenet were college students and most of the new users would show up in September. They would be the freshmen who had just come onto campus, whatever campus, and gotten access to Usenet for the first time. And they knew nothing about the etiquette that the Usenet community had established. You know, like really basic stuff, like before you post something, see if the exact same thing has already been posted in this thread. If you're going to make a factual claim that's controversial, post a link to back it up. Don't spam, right? Don't post the same thing over and over and over again. Nobody wants to see that. It does nobody any favors, that sort of thing. Now, in practice, what this meant is that every September, Usenet would be immediately overrun by all these users who had no idea what they were doing, knew nothing of the etiquette of the group, and would just trample through the forums, just leaving a mess wherever they went, just posting spam, posting stuff that had already been posted, making all sorts of ridiculous claims without evidence, that sort of thing. 
And it was awful, but in another sense, it was okay because it was a teachable moment for the veterans of the Usenet forum. They would take the time, put in the effort to educate these people about, hey, this is what we all have to do to keep this online space a livable space. And by October, everybody would be up on the etiquette. People who didn't want to follow it would have given up on Usenet and spent their time on something else. People who wanted to stick around would know the etiquette and everything would be just great until the end of the school year. Um, and then when September would roll around again, they would go through the cycle and it would be fine. Until the summer of 1993, when America Online decided to give its users direct access to Usenet. Now, if you weren't around in the early 90s, you probably don't realize what a juggernaut America Online was at the time. America Online was what's called a walled garden service, which means it didn't give you access to the World Wide Web, at least not in its early days. The World Wide Web was barely a thing back then. It would give you access to its private network, and it would have channels where you could read magazines and it would have chat rooms where you could talk to people and it would have games you could play but it wasn't the internet as we know it now it was not the world wide web it was a walled garden network but it managed to get tens of millions of subscribers just by carpet bombing the world with cd-roms with uh, sample software on it what this meant was that everybody and their dog was on America Online, at least by early 90s standards. Um, and what America Online did in September of 1993 was it decided to give all of their users access to Usenet. Now, I'm sure on paper that sounded like a great idea. Usenet is the forums of the modern world. Usenet is where the greatest minds, or at least the minds smarter, rich enough to be in college, go to discuss things. And who wouldn't want to give the world access to Usenet? But what happened in practice was that suddenly tens of millions of new users were trampling through the Usenet forums, ignoring the etiquette, spamming the pages, posting dumb crap and not bothering to seriously engage with people. And there just weren't enough Usenet admins or Usenet veterans to put them back on the right path to engage in health, healthy and productive ways. Um, and most Usenet veterans ended up giving up on the service because there was just no way to overcome all the silly nonsense that was clogging up all the discussion groups. Hence the name Eternal September because because from that moment on, at least in the minds of Usenet veterans, every month was like September. And I feel like the modern online world is having its own mega endless September moment. When the pioneers of modern social media, like Mark Zuckerberg and whoever the heck is behind Twitter, I have no idea and I'm not gonna bother looking it up because I don't care. When they first, their products first went online, they talked in these lofty ideals about connecting everyone in the world together to bring about this new era of human understanding. And I don't think, I'm 
I'm saying anything terribly controversial when I say what has happened is really the opposite of that. There was a time when I would try to seriously engage people online, um, critique their ideas, not them, point them to facts if they were wrong about things. But as more and more people come online, it becomes less and less worth it because there's more and more people shouting at you and there's less and less reason to think those people are engaging in good faith. Am I part of the problem? I don't know. Probably. I've come to the point where if someone posts something that I think is utterly ridiculous, like, you know, something anti-vax or something support for Donald Trump related, I'll just click the little ha-ha react on Facebook instead of bothering to engage them at all. Um, and it's not because I'm willfully trying to be mean. It's just because there's so many people yelling so many ignorant things and I do not have the time in my day to engage them. And the reality is that nobody does. Um, in the early days of Usenet, they would get a set number of neophytes every September, and there were enough uh, veteran users to educate them about the purpose of the forums. But when AOL started giving its users access to Usenet and there were suddenly literally tens of millions of people trampling through the forums, most of whom didn't even know they were leaving AOL's walled garden, and most of whom didn't think they'd be back and thought it was just a excuse for them to have a little bit of fun with some people they'd never talk to again. There was just no way to restore any semblance of productive order. And that's kind of what I was thinking about when I was I was talking to Tom about the dissent forums, because the these online forums that used to be a big thing in like the late 90s early 2000s those were kind of the spiritual successor to stuff like usenet where it was it was just a bulletin board system with a set number of users where people could post things and then you know a few dozen a few hundred maybe a couple thousand people could interact with it and have a serious discussion um, and social media has replaced that and in many ways just kind of undone it because using Facebook on a given day or using Twitter on a given day, I'm liable to be in contact directly or indirectly with literally millions of people. And there's no way to keep order in a system that has that many people and thus that much anonymity and thus that little accountability for uh, bad or unserious behavior. In the dissent forums, if someone posts the movie Zeitgeist, someone like Tom can post something and say, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to do a little research. I'm going to get back to you. And then he gets back and he posts a long post and people actually read it and actually engage seriously with it for the most part. On Facebook, if someone posts Zeitgeist or posts an anti-vax meme or whatever, you look at it and you know that the first 10 comments are going to be a mix of you go girl, people who disagree with me are idiots, here's a fart joke for no reason, and there's just no way to cut through the noise. Um, and I know there are going to be a lot of people who say, well, I try to engage with people seriously online. And I mean, I guess good on you if that's true. But the point is that no one person can overcome this huge systemic problem of signal to noise ratio. It's what's 
sometimes called the tragedy of the commons, um, which is that when resources are shared, when spaces are shared, people are incentivized to do what is best for them instead of what is best for the community. The classic example is the shepherds who share a pasture, right? Um, if you're a shepherd, what works out best for you is if your sheep get as much of the grass as possible and you leave as little as possible for the others maintaining the pasture is not really in your own self-interest and so most shepherds are not going to do it or like to put it in slightly woker more millennially terms think about recycling if recycling is really difficult in your area if you have to separate all the glass and the plastic and then climb a mountain carrying it on your back probably most people are not going to recycle now you personally can choose to make that choice but in a large group of people you can pretty reliably expect that very few of them will do it. So you can be that social media hero, if you want, who engages people seriously and tries to make a difference in the world. But the reality is that the average person responds to incentives. That's just one of the basic principles of economics. So people are going to use social media to get what they want out of it as quickly as they can get it. And it's much easier to enjoy social media by sniping at strangers in order to gin up likes than it is to use it to engage seriously with people on important subjects and try to come to a mutual understanding. And so that's what we see on social media. And it's not that any one person on social media is a terrible person. It's that the whole system is broken and I don't know what to do about it. That's it for this week. Um, I want to thank Tom for being on the show. Uh, he's a good friend of mine. I'm really glad to know him. If you are curious, I did write a couple of pieces about this. Um, I wrote one two years ago called No Christmas Isn't Secretly Pagan. You can find it on ChristinPopCulture.com. Um, and then I wrote a follow-up called No Easter Isn't Pagan Either. Uh, same website. So, you know, you can Google that stuff. Um, I think if you Google Christmas Isn't Pagan, it comes right up i do want to thank uh, raven creek social club for hosting the podcast check out their other podcasts faith and other oddities and the commentarians they're both a lot of fun if you like what i'm doing here please take a second to rate and review it on itunes i would love to read another review live on the air make you internet famous please uh, tweet at me it's at luke t harrington i'd love to hear what you have to say about this is christmas pagan if so why do you think so you're wrong, by the way. Um, also, go to my website, luketharrington.com. There you can find information about my other projects, like my award-winning novel, Ophelia Alive, A Ghost Story, or my ongoing novel I'm writing live on the internet with best-selling author KB Hoyle at projectconarrative.com. I'd love to hear from you. I'm Luke T. Harrington. Thank you for listening to Changed My Mind, and don't be afraid to change your mind.